Okay, we're going to start off today with a testimony. I love testimonies, especially when it involves people coming to the Lord. And so Jerry was uh, on that group from the church that went to Ecuador this past week, and he was telling me a short story about how some people came to the Lord, and it was so exciting. I love these types of stories. So I said, you've you got to come to the class and tell us this. So, All right, so... Um... I'm Jerry Edrington, and I work in the youth department here, and I started in 2014 taking um, seniors to Ecuador, and I've graduated now. In October, I also take um, adults. So I just got back yesterday morning from my ninth trip. It's been a very fruitful ministry for our church. But for me personally, it has made my growth in the Lord just exponential. Um, I was there in October. And we were in a village that has an evangelical presence, and we were working. But we were told, do not cross the bridge to the other side because there's witchcraft. And if you go over there, they're, they're going to stone you. Well, for those of you that know me, you tell me don't do something. That's just like inviting me in. And so <clears throat> there was a woman on the trip who had prayed a couple of nights earlier and just one of those very powerful prayers. And so at lunch, I told her, I said, look. I'm going across the bridge, and I want you to pray for me while I'm gone. And she said, I'm going with you. So we went across the bridge, and we went up Main Street, and we just walked, praying the whole way up. When we got to the top, I just turned around, and I held out my hands, and I said, Lord, I just want you to come and seize this village. And I want you to be so powerful that you chase Satan away, and that there's no question that you have redeemed this village for you. And we left. No big deal, right? So I'm down there with the kids <clears throat> last week, and um, the pastor was with us, Roger, and we were driving, and we were going to drive about 15 minutes past this place, and he said, man, we got to pull this bus over. I need a bathroom break. So we pulled the bus over, went into this little church where we had been working in October, and I came back, and one of the things, when I take... 16 to 18 year old high school girls down there I am vigilant about what happens and I see two guys that I don't recognize standing by my bus and man I am moving quickly to get there and see what's going on and the guy says to me are you the man from October I don't understand the question are you the leader from October and I said yes I'm bringing a team here in October and he said I want you to come to my village and I said well I don't pick the village the missionary picks the village and he said, well, my village is right here, right here across the bridge. And I went, I will come to your village. And I took these little beads, and we use these, we use these bead bracelets to walk through the gospel. And I took them out of my pocket, and I said, but here's what I'm going to talk about. And I went through, told the gospel, and I said, that's what I'm going to talk about, and that's the only thing I'm going to talk about if you let me come to your village. And he said, I want you to come to my village because we need Jesus in our village. And I said, I will be there, but why don't you start today? Accept Jesus Christ. And he had the vice president of the village with him. I said, both of you guys can accept Jesus Christ today and start changing your village. I'll bring my team in October, and we will make a dramatic difference in your village. Both those guys got down on their knees and accepted Jesus Christ into their hearts. In a village that six months ago they were going to stone me if I went there. And I will tell you... <clears throat> If God can use a vessel like me, a broken man, a sinner, to save an entire village, three-hour bus drive away from civilization in Ecuador, he can use you wherever you are today. God loves you.
That is a great, great testimony. I love to hear things like that. I just love it. I mean, you know, so, some people wonder, you know, why I'm so emphatic about, about getting people saved. Um, I want to I wanna share with you something and, and, and just, just share with you Paul's heart. In Romans, in Romans chapter 9, reading from verse 1, Paul is sharing his heart. And Paul says from Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. This is a very strange sort of introduction. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. When somebody says to me, I'll be truthful with you, I right away suspect that they're going to be lying to me. Because why do they have to tell me that they're, that they're going to tell me the truth? Does that mean if they hadn't qualified it, it's going to be a lie? And, and, but Paul is trying to be so emphatic here. He says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He says, this is just what drives me. What drove Paul? He said, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Not just sorrow. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. That means that wherever he went, Paul had some sort of knife in his heart. What was it? For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul said, I would give up my salvation. I would be accursed, separated from Christ, if I could bring my brethren, the Jewish people, into a saving grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you about myself, about myself. I would never pray that prayer about anyone. I wouldn't give up my salvation for anybody else's salvation. I say, Lord, give me a heart more like Paul's. Give me a heart more like Paul's. I need that. I need to have a heart like that. I need to have that kind of heart. And the scriptures tell us in Psalm 126, verse 6, it says, Psalm 126, verse 6, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. He who goes to and fro weeping, weeping is, has to come first. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again. When God says shall, it has to happen. And here God says shall indeed. It's like this is definitely going to happen. If you get a heart, that weeps for the lost, then you will see them coming. You want to see people coming to faith? There has to be a concern for others, salvation, so that it moves you so deeply that you start weeping for people's hearts. And that will not come by itself. It only comes by praying every day, Lord, do this in my heart. Lord, change my heart. The Bible says, I will, God says, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's not us, up to us to take it out. It's up to Him. Just, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's up to Him to do that. So Lord, do that work in my heart to break my heart for the lost. And only then, only then do we see people come to the Lord around us. I have many years of experience of seeing few people come to the Lord. I'm very good at having people not come to the Lord when I share with them. But what changes that is when we start praying and start saying, Lord, work in my heart and change my heart. 
And then you start seeing people come to the Lord. This is what Paul had. This is why his heart changed. And you read about George Whitfield, who had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming to the Lord. More people knew the face of George Whitfield in the American colonies in the mid-1700s than they knew the face of George Washington. 80% of the people in the American colonies, it is believed, had seen him, his face and heard him preach. And he wept for the lost. He wept for them. He couldn't even compose himself when he was preaching to them. He would be weeping for, for their souls. That is how it happens. And you see this, this, this just, we just got to go there and pray that Jerry was giving this testimony. And then what God did. When you have that sort of desire to see people saved, then you see them saved. That's really the thing that does it. Everything that they teach us about witnessing and evangelism, that's all fine, but it's all methodology. It's only good once the heart is changed. Once your heart is changed for the lost, then you get to exercise that far more. Okay, we are in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, we began this chapter last week. Genesis chapter 14, we're going to start reading again. uh, Let me just set it in context. There were five kings in the valley of, of the Dead Sea. They were being attacked by four much larger kingdoms had combined and they were being attacked and they were overrun. One of the towns that was overrun was was the town of, of Sodom. You've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and uh, uh, the reason it becomes significant is because uh, uh, in that town lived a man named Lot and his wife and his two daughters. Lot was Abram's nephew and so Abram immediately became concerned about this. In verse 13 of Genesis chapter 14, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relatives had been taken, he led, them, he, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and, all, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. And we looked last week about the map and where the attacks were and how, Mo, how Abram went 140 miles from, from where he was in Hebron all the way up to, to uh, 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 Dan at the top of the map there and then into Damascus another 30 or 40 miles to, to deal with this. And Abram won this battle and he's coming back. And so now we're going to pick up with, with, with uh, a portion of the text that we, we didn't go into. But what I want to mention is it says that in verse 13, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre in verse 14. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken, he let out his trained men. The reason Abram went to battle is because his nephew Lot was captured. That's why he went. If Lot had not been there, he wouldn't have been looking for any other fights. But now his family was involved. In verse, seven, in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14, Then, after his return from the defeat of Cheldolamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, son of Sal- uh, uh, king of Salem, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. 
He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Ener, Eshkol, Mamre. Look, let them take their share. So after the defeat up in the north, they're coming back down. He's got to come all the way back down. He was staying just outside of Hebron. So they're coming all the way back down. And this valley that they're talking about, he was on, on, on the western side of the Jordan, and he's coming down right here past Jerusalem. So right here is Jerusalem, and just to the, 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 um, the east side of Jerusalem is a valley. It's that valley that he was met in, just, just off there, the, the Temple Mount, where the temple will, will eventually be built. And so he's just coming through that. That is the Kidron Valley. That valley that's... that's uh, just to the east of Jerusalem actually is a wadi that runs all the way down into the Dead Sea. And that valley is... is, is uh, uh, Jesus crossed that valley many times because you have to go down into the Kidron Valley and then to go back up into the Mount of Olives. Jesus hung out there a lot. And then over the Mount of Olives on the other side of that hill, halfway down the next hill was... Uh, um, where, where Lazarus and his sister Mary and his sister Martha lived in, in, uh, um, uh, in that little city there. But that valley became a very popular valley. We read a lot about that valley in the New Testament. And it says two kings came out to meet him when he was passing by there. Remember, he's worn out. He's had this battle. His men are worn out. And he goes there and it says... It says in verse 17, Then after his return, after the defeat of Chelderlamor, the kings who were with him, that the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. That's the valley they're talking about, just on the east side of Jerusalem, as they're passing by Jerusalem to head on down to Hebron. The distance between Jerusalem and Hebron is about 10 miles. So he's about 10 miles from home. And, uh, uh, so, and, and so you figure, you know, maybe he spent the night there, uh, we, we don't know that, but it says that the king of Sodom. Now back up in, in verse, uh, um, they, they, it, it talked in, it spoke in verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim, Sidim which is down, down by the Dead Sea Valley, valley where the first battle had taken place against, against, uh, Sodom. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them. They, they, they fl- was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. So there were, they fell into tar pits, some died there, others survived. So obviously either the king survived, or this is a new king that was selected immediately, maybe his son. But it never says that the king of Sodom died. People fell into them, but some survived. So he meets him in this valley. And before we hear what is said, then it mentions another king named Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Salem. So you have the city of peace. Salem is, is this peace. So, so uh, uh, you often hear this 
uh, greeting, uh, uh, an Arab may say, Salam Aleikum, peace. Uh, uh, you, you hear this, uh, uh, the, the Hebrew greeting, Shalom. This is the same root of the word, Salem. So the city of peace. Salem is this city. It's the current day Jerusalem. So from the, from the old city Jerusalem, right at the top of that mountain, down into the Kidron Valley, is only, oh, I would say maybe three or four hundred yards. Not that far. Maybe four hundred yards. From, from right at the top where the Temple Mount is, down to that valley. It's no, not far. So this king, the king of Salem, that is a Jebusite city. The people in Jerusalem were called Jebusites. This is Jebusite city. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and he brought out bread and wine. So who is this Melchizedek? Some people think that this is a theophany, meaning an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Many other scholars would disagree because in a theophany there'd be an appearance, but that person that appeared never had, and that, that, that theophany, that God that appeared, never had an earthly post. This man had two earthly posts. One was king of Salem, king of a particular city that had real people living in it. And he was also priest of the Most High God in that city. He was the priest of the Most High God in that city. So he had two positions, both king and priest. And this tells us that there were other people that worshipped the same God as Abram did, living in the time of Abram. This man certainly did. And he brought out bread and wine. And some people would say, well, then this is like the Lord's Supper. Maybe, maybe not, because there's, there's plenty of references to other things. So, for example, in Lamentations, in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 12, talks about them when there was real starvation in the city. It says, the children would say to their mothers, where is the bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city and their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. So to just say there's bread and wine, bread and wine is what they would drink just when they were famished. And you say, well, why wine? Why not grape juice? It's hard to preserve things that, 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 that don't have alcohol in them. And so bread and wine was very common, and that was the thing that you gave people to be refreshed. These people had gone several hundred miles, fought a battle, and remember, Abram's tired at this point. It's not like, oh, we fought a battle, let's go home now. They had seen a lot of blood, a lot of death. These people are tired. The king of Salem comes in and he refreshes them with bread and wine. And then what he does in verse 19, and he blessed him. That means Melchizedek blessed Abram. He blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. That means Abram gave a tithe to this priest, the king of Salem, a tenth of everything that he had gotten. It was all Abram's. It belonged to Abram by, by, by the law of conquest. And he gave a tenth portion to, to uh, uh, this king of Salem. The king of Salem, it says, he refreshed him physically with bread and wine. And he blessed him. He blessed Abram. He proclaimed a blessing upon Abram. He blessed Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Then he blessed God Most High. He blessed God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of all. We could call this a tale of two kings. We're going to compare here two kings. One king was the king of Salem, a man who loved God, a man whose focus was on God. Here is the weary coming on through. 
And what does he do? He refreshes him physically and he blesses him in the name of God. And he blesses God for the victory that was won through Abram. And Abram's heart was touched by this and he committed a tenth portion of all the proceeds, a tithe of this, to the priest of Salem. And then there's only one other verse in the book of Psalms on Melchizedek. And then we hear nothing else in the Old Testament about Melchizedek. Very little in the Old Testament. But in the book of Hebrews, we have about seven verses on Melchizedek. So we learn a lot more in the book of Hebrews. Now, many people, his name means king of righteousness. So people would say, oh, well, his name means king of righteousness. Therefore, it must have been Jesus. Well, the, eventually, when, when, when the Israelites come into the land under, under um, Joshua, they came in and they killed the king of Salem, who at that time was a godless man, and his name was Adonai, his name was Adonai Zedek. Zedek was the Jebusite title at the end of a name, and this king that they killed off, his name was Adonai, the name that we use for Lord. And so does that mean that this guy was a good guy because his name was Lord? You know, there's people named Jesus. Does that mean they're all like, they're all Jesus? No, no, they just happen to have that name. And so, so, uh, um, so that Adonai Zedek is the king that, that Joshua's uh, uh, team ends up killing in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. So uh, um, anyway, so they, they come out and he blesses him. Then the king of Sodom speaks up in verse 21. The king of Sodom says to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, he's not really in very much of a position to be negotiating anything, right? He has nothing. He's a, ki- a king without a kingdom. His, 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 his country has been, been overrun. He's a king without a kingdom. And uh, uh, he, says, he says, you go ahead, just give me the people and, and uh, uh, you just keep the money for yourself. And because it says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 28, in a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. So if you're a king without people, you're not much of a king. But what I want you to see is the contrast between these two kings. This is a tale of two kings. One is set on the things of God. The other is set on the things of this world. He says, give me the people and you can keep the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. He said, I'm not going to take a thing of yours. You can take the people. You can take your possessions too. I don't want people to see this and and think that I am rich. Well, what is it that was so repulsive about Sodom for Abram? Well, that was in in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, it says in in verse 13, Genesis, Genesis 13, 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly. So they weren't just wicked, they were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So these were really corrupt people. The only reason Abram went to deliver them is because his nephew was there. In, in, in Genesis 13, verse 12, it says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he had moved first 
up near Sodom, and then he ends up living in Sodom because it says, and Lot was in Sodom when it was conquered. So he moved from outside Sodom, he moved in Sodom. You get close to corruption, you will end up moving right on into it. Very hard to move close to corruption and not become part of it. And then we're later going to see that Lot not only moves in the city, moves back into the city, he becomes one who sits in the gate, meaning one of the council of elders of that city. He's going to, and, and that's going to be his real downfall. But here, Lot was one who moved in that city. Lot is a righteous man. We looked at, at, at those verses last week. Because in, it, it talks about Lot being a righteous man in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. It says Lot was a righteous man and it talked about his righteous soul. Three times, twice it says he was a righteous man, once it said he has a right, righteous soul. Righteous people, people who are saved, believers, can indeed move into cities and move into situations that are corrupt and bad and will end up corrupting them. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap, the Bible says. And, it, and, and, and the scriptures clearly tell us that, that uh, a bad company, tells us in the New Testament, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. That is why the community, the community of the body of Christ is so important. But you see, he says, I'm not going to take anything of yours. You can take it all. The only thing that's going to be taken here is in verse 24, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten. Who are these young men? These are the 318 that it spoke about in verse 14, Genesis 14, 14. When Abram heard this, uh, uh, that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. These were the 318 trained men, not just regular men. They were all trained in war. And remember, training is worth a lot in battle. These were trained men. And with him, he, he, took, he, he had this alliance with these three other men who were brothers, these Amorites. And, but it says in verse 24, they were young men. Which makes sense. These, these are the young men go, don't go out. The young men who are trained go out to battle. Not old men, not children. Verse 24, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten. You're going to pay their subsistence, that's for sure. They're going to eat. And the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. He says, as far as them, they can take from yours. I have nothing to do with that. I'm not going to take a thing from you. He set apart himself to be separate. It says in First, First Thessalonians 5.22, in the King James Version, makes it very clear. The New American Standard will say this and put this term in, in, in the footnote. Abstain from the appearance of all evil. First Thessalonians 5.22, abstain even from the appearance of evil. Abram didn't want to have anything to do with getting rich from something that had come out of Sodom. Nothing to do with that. Now, Abram had plenty that Sodom that, from some of the other cities there. But as far as that which came out of Sodom, he'd have nothing to do with that. Nothing. He wanted to be free of the appearance of evil. There's things that as believers we do to stay free of the appearance of evil. I've told you before, a female comes into my office, the door stays open. The door just stays open. Not like if the door shuts, I'm going to pounce on her. No. But I don't want the appearance of evil. 
This should not be the appearance of evil. As believers, we have to stay separate from that. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. This is a tale of two kings. One king, everything is directed toward God. Everything is directed toward God. Glorifying God that Abram is coming back safe. Glorifying God for the victory that God won. And the other is just wants to do business. One is set on God, the other is set on the things of this earth. And, and I have these bunch of companies and, and lots of investor people like to come and talk with me. And, and, and just recently I was sitting with, with, uh, with four men who like, like to advise me on, on my businesses. And they, they just can't understand this. I don't think they get it. They get to say, what is your motivation? I say, to see souls saved. All right, what is your motivation with these companies? To see soul sane. This is what I want to see. And, and what bothers them is they think that the gym tour doesn't get enough out of these, these companies. They want more for me. And, and, uh, um, and, and so they say, you, you know, it's not for, you, for, you, for your wife, for your children. I said, my wife is going to be fine. If something happens to me, trust me, she's going to be fine. I mean, if something happened to me and my wife showed up at your house, would you feed her? <laughs> you know, see, she's going to be fine. She has so many friends. She's going to be fine. And, and they say, and what about your children? I said, look, I don't want to leave my children too much. Because if I set up this trust fund for them, then they don't work. I've seen this. I've seen kids that have these trust funds and they don't want to work. I don't want them to have too much. Why do I want to burden them? The Bible speaks of riches as thick clay which just bogs you down. Why would I want to do that to them? My motivation is to see people saved. That is why I do this. I want to see people saved. We are to have a heavenly focus. It is so easy to get drawn in by the things of the world, to get drawn into these things by the things of this world. The whole thing is about seeing people saved. The whole goodness of seeing people saved. You see this whole thing of Melchizedek. Everything was about God. If our focus, if our focus becomes about the things of the world, then we end up fighting in the world for all these things. God can bless you. He can bless you in your career. He can bless you in your work. But the focus must be on God. Everything has to be about God. Because what happens, and so let, let, me, let me speak here. I'm speaking to the believers. Your focus should be on the Lord. If everything, if everything is about that career, you know, it's good to... to to be concerned about your career, to work toward the good things of a career, but your focus primarily should be on Jesus Christ. Jesus told us to follow Him, to desire Him and His kingdom, and all these other things will be added unto you. I'll tell you, in my own life, if when I was in your position, I never imagined that I would get to the position that I am in research and publications and all of this. Never imagined. I thought it'd be good just to be a regular professor. Wouldn't it be good to be... And just God has done more than I could ever ask or think. If you focus your, 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 on Jesus, He takes care of so many other things in your life. Now to the unbeliever in this, there is the focus on God. Remember, you can go chasing after the things of this world. And they're really elusive. Really elusive. It says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 6, 23, 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but there's a free gift. God offers to you this day a free gift. He offers the free gift of Jesus Christ. It is a free gift. It's not something we can work for. It's not something we can get. In, in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the state in which you are, Christ died for you. He gave His life for you. In the state in which you are, there's none, none righteous among us. No, not one. The Scripture calls us. And He says, He says, in, in, in Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. If you have never accepted Jesus, He calls you this day. He says, come to me. Come to me. I invite you in to come to me. Have a relationship with me. Come to Jesus. It's so important, if you're not a Christian, to come to Him. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've never said, Lord, I believe that you are Lord, I believe you've risen from the dead, it's so important for you to take that step. Because in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is, this is the crux of Christianity. It is believing it is, it is confessing that Jesus is Lord. That I confess Jesus is the Lord of my life. And I believe that He's risen from the dead because God has placed that truth upon every human being. If you are here today, you are one of God's elect. Elect means one of the ones that is to be saved. And how do I know that? Because if you were not among His elect, you would not be here. The devil would have complete charge over you and he would just keep you so far from this place. You'd never come near this place if you were not among his elect. But you are among his elect and that's why you are here. So I say delay no longer. Delay no longer. Don't delay to walk in this. Don't say, oh, I need to go home and pray about it. You don't need to pray about obeying God's commandments. God commands us to come to him. That is his commandment. This is His commandment, that we believe on the name of His Son. This is His commandment, that we believe on the name of His Son. 1 John 3.23. It is a commandment. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 60, that I did not delay, I made haste, and I did not delay to keep your commandments. We make haste, we go quickly to keep God's commandments. Do not delay in this. If you have never accepted the Lord, I urge you this day to accept the Lord. Become a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and be His child. He says, I will remember your sins no more. You might think I'm too wicked, I'm too dirty. You are not. The Bible says Paul, the apostle, Saul, was the most wicked, the most wicked one. You can't be more wicked than him. And even if you consider yourself so wicked... Doesn't the wicked need this all the more? Isn't the man who's deathly ill, doesn't that man have to be in the hospital more than any others? Isn't the poorest one more in need of a donation than one who's not poor? So if you're really wicked, that's all the more reason to come to Him. Make haste and do not delay to come to Him. This is what it's all about. There were two kings. One king was set on the things of this world and couldn't get his mind off of this. And the other king had his mind focused in on the things of God.
When you focus in on the things of God as a believer, you focus on the things of God, your life will go so much better. This man, Melchizedek, was focused in on the things of God. Abram was focused in on the things of God. Learn to turn your focus to Him. Don't make your career the pinnacle of what you seek. It is God. It is God. You love Him and love His kingdom. All these other things will be added to you. He can do more than you could ever ask or think if you love Him and love His kingdom. If you don't know Him, I urge you today, become a Christian. Give your life to Jesus this day. Don't let this day go by without giving your life to Jesus. After this, we are going to take the Lord's Supper. After the Lord's Supper, I will be here. If you are ready to accept the Lord, come and talk to me. If you want to talk more, I invite you to my home for lunch. After the Lord's Supper, we're going to have lunch in my home. I invite you to come. Come to my home, and I will tell you this, and I will explain this to you very gently. I will be as gentle as can be, and I will explain this to you so that you can accept the Lord today. Remember, if you are here and you've never accepted the Lord, that's why you're here to accept the Lord. You are among His elect, and that's why you are here. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you speak to the hearts of these young people. Father, I pray here today for the believers. I pray that you would take hold of their hearts, that they would focus on the eternal things. Father, that they would be like Melchizedek and like Abram, focusing on the things of God, giving glory to him. And that you would add all the other things that they need in life. And Lord, I pray that they take hold of you, that they wouldn't be like the king of Sodom, always trying to negotiate for the things of this world. But Father, I pray that you'd make them focused in on the things that bring glory to you. Lord, I thank you because you said to your Father, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you have given me to do. And so Father, I pray that you'd put that on their hearts, that they would bring glory to you by accomplishing the things that you've given them to do. And Father, for the unbelievers that are here, I would I pray, Lord, that today, today, they would say, Lord, forgive me, because I am a sinner. If you're an unbeliever, I want you to repeat with me in this prayer. Forgive me, because I am a sinner, and come into my life. Forgive me for my sins. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Save souls, I pray. Oh, Lord, save their souls. How could a man, how could a woman, Lord, sit through this message and not receive Jesus? Oh, Father, break their hearts, I pray, that they would come, that they would come into the kingdom this day. Father, draw them, lest they waste so much more of their lives because they will be drawn. They will. Because your word says, they shall come. They shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit at the table in the kingdom of God. They shall come. Lord, bring them this day, I pray. Let them delay no longer, lest they bring great turmoil upon their lives, just as Lot did. Father, I pray that you'd save their souls this day. 
because it is not up to the man who wills or the man who runs, but to God who has mercy for the glory of Jesus. Amen.